tonight on Arena. Actor-turned-boxer Terry O'Neill on his one-man show, Rope-A-Dope. And Eugene O'Brien brings us into the world of naval racing in his new film, Tarak. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. We have two sports-inspired stories on the show this evening. Later, we'll be hearing from Eugene O'Brien about the film Tarak, based on an all-female naval rowing crew. But to start this evening, rope-a-dope is a boxing technique technique famously used by Muhammad Ali to wear out opponent George Foreman in the 1974 Rumble in the Jungle. Rope-a-dope is also the name of a play. One-man show by former boxer, now-turned-actor Terry O'Neill that brings us into the world of amateur and professional boxing and the history of some of the great fighters. Terry pulls no punches and there are lots of laughs, laugh-out-louds moments uh, along the way. Currently running at in Beaulieu's Theatre and delighted to have Terry with me in the, in the studio this evening. Um, just talk about your own route towards boxing, maybe if you would, to start off. Terry, I mean, you were a successful amateur boxer, Irish champion, medal winner, represented your country abroad. So why did you, well, let's, how did you get there before, why did um, you stop? <laughs> why did I stop? Okay, well, no, how that's, did that's you get there? Question. Yeah. Why I started, I guess, was yeah. like most kids at 12 or 13 years of age. I saw the Rocky movies about 200 times and I became like, um, in cap- like captivated by that story of the real mm. underdog I saw myself as like you know I was a small little sickly skinny kid I want to go up against this imagined kind of adversary and prove myself that I'm tough this was like trying to answer like complex questions about masculinity with simple answers you know mm. so um, I went to a boxing club Mount Talent Boxing Club when I was 12 years of age my dad brought me I was almost 13 and um Straight away, I remember it being like absolutely like one of those road to Damascus kind of moments in my life where life was just changed forever. Mm. I walked in the boxing club and I came out changed. Like it just, my dad even talks about it now. He remembers that day quite well. I just walked around mouth agape. Like it was finally, here's something I can do. I yeah. feel like I can take to this. I'm interested in this. And you, you say, you mentioned in the script actually, you mentioned talk about specific sounds and specific smells that really bring you back to that first day in there. Absolutely. I mean, like the sound of a speed bike being <clears throat> volleyed against its bracket. The sound of, like the leather of sound like two grown men punching each other in the ring, sparring, mm. or the rat tat tat of the skipping rope. And the smell, like the smell, I think any ex-boxer listening will know. It's the same smell in every boxing club in the world. <laughs> From Tala to Crumlin to Dorset Street, Dublin, to Whitechapel, London, to Havana, Cuba, Mexico City. It's like a, a mix of leather, sweat. Disinfectant and cheap deodorant. That's the way it smells. <laughs> All of them. All of them. Every one of them. <laughs> the uniform smell. But you get to love that smell if you spend enough time there. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess you would. And who who was there when on the first day when you were in? Quite a famous. Was Mick Dowling there? Mr. The, Mick Dowling. Yes. <laughs> Mick Dowling himself was there. Yeah. Who you say doesn't really speak in words? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mentioned in the show that Mick Mick wouldn't like, you know, he's got a great speaking or TV voice, but he doesn't use it very often because he spoke exclusively with punches. <laughs> Mick would kind of go into the gym and like, zap, zap, yup, 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 bobbing and weaving and throwing shapes. And you're like, yup, yup, whoop, yup, bam. <laughs> More sound effects and punches. He's yeah. very, a very visual coach, shall we say. He'll show you what to do, not tell you. Um, so you go, you go in and you start this. Had you, had you any kind of experience of fighting? Had you any kind of natural ability or what What was the route from those wonderful four smells uh, that you got uh, to the point where you actually could get into a ring and have a fight? 
I guess um, the first time you spar, I often think is like an acid test. It definitely is a litmus test. And for most people, the natural kind of inclination is to pull away from a punch, blink, or mm. turn your head slightly. And that's actually, it's, it's, it feels like the natural response, but that's going to get you knocked out because it's the old, the old adage that like um, the shots you don't see coming are the ones that really hurt. So if you've got this, like, to, to put it crudely, if you've got a bit of natural cowardice in you, you'll almost never make it as a boxer because you have to kind of embrace the punches, be able to walk through them, like try and, try and get through that pain threshold. So I guess I could do that the first time I sparred. I, I mean, I got I got my ears boxed in. You know what I mean? Yeah. By, by two much more experienced boys. But I didn't quit, and I didn't. Uh, I didn't quit. I didn't look away. So that was that was promising. I guess. I guess I suppose what you're talking about there is, you know, to use the football analogy or any sport. It really, if you take your eye off the ball, you're not going to catch the ball. 100%. In the case of boxing, if you take your eye off the fist, you are going to catch the fist. You are going to become the, the ball. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're going to be, basically. You're going to be the ball. Who did you? Who was your first fight against? I believe this. This was kind of um, the baptism fight, of fire. Yeah, was, I remember. Was a, a fella like from this, school, wasn't it? Fella from school, same class as me. Dar- Darren Acton was his name. You probably won't be delighted if I name him, but um, <laughs> it was like one of those things where we were 13 years of age and it was like the Ali versus Frazier of 13-year-old boxing. Everybody knew about that in school. Like the older, we were in first year and like the, the kids in sixth year knew about it. The, the bullies and the geeks. I felt like the teachers were almost taking bets behind the scenes who was going to win. <laughs> yeah. So it was like a big pressure situation. I think to this day, no matter what I do in life, I'll never be quite as nervous as I was before that first fight. And? How did you do? I won, I won, I won. I won, of course. Is or else it, it wouldn't be part of the script. Is it, is it important <laughs> to win that first fight? I think it is. Um, I mean, some boxers handle adversity incredibly well. And, and, and I did as time went on. But before the first fight, my ego was so fragile and everybody knew about it to the point where, like I remember like Paddy Barnes from Belfast lost 15 fights in a row and he went on to be a two-time Olympic medalist for Ireland. Fritzy Zivic lost 65 times and was professional world welterweight champion. But if I lost my first fight, the way I felt, there wouldn't have been a second one, put it that way. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny now you give us the two examples of two fighters. There's something you do in the script and something you do in the show uh, a fair bit, I think, which is this idea of lists where you, you seem to have an encyclopedic memory. Can I, can I do a couple of tests on you now? Yeah, check, absolutely. Check away. All, all right. Top five fights. Top five fights of all time. Oh, that's, that's a really tough one. Really tough. I'd say personal top five, I'd go Arturo Gatti against Mickey Ward, number one. And uh, number two, maybe Billy Conn, Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis, the, the famous mm. the famous um expression Billy Conn he was winning the fight and he turned and he kind of changed his style, trying to finish Joe Lewis off. And he famously said, I let my Irish get the better of me. <laughs> uh, Rocky Marciano, Rocky Marciano, Jersey Joe Walcott, first fight, 13 round knockout's gotta be up there. Uh, from a personal standpoint like one I seen live mm. Jose Luis Castillo against against uh, Diego Corrales is up there too and then maybe Archie Moore against Yvonne Durrell number one right so those those are those are and, and you have this not just in, in terms of top top five boxing songs can you give me a, what would you where would you go uh, there I'd say Bob Dylan's got a top the list hasn't he Hurricane <laughs> maybe Simon Garfunkel number two yeah um Bugsy Malone, say so you wanna be a boxer. That's that that could be in there somewhere too. Uh, what else? What else on the fives? Uh, uh, what about um, the Fugees? There's the Fugees, yeah. absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Rumble in the jungle. Rumble in the jungle, which yeah. is where the show gets its title from. The, yeah, the absolutely. Fight. Yep, absolutely. Um, the fact that uh, you know you, the boxing was the thing. How? 
was school really just not a not a runner for you? Was the academic side of things just didn't appeal to you in any no, way? Absolutely, washed out, went over my head. Um, in my mind, in my twelve and thirteen year old brain, right up to like fifteen, mm. sixteen, I was going to be a boxer, so I didn't have to listen in school. That's that's kind of the school was just a waste of my time. I was I, I had ever so much more important things to be doing in my mind, you know. So I wasn't. Um, I couldn't really listen in school, but I could rattle off a list of every mm. champion who ever lived, you know. So I'm not sure how useful that information is, to be honest, Sean. You know, <laughs> it's a. Uh, it, but it, it was it was what got you through those those early years. I guess um, so. Let Let's have a little bit. Maybe you perform a little section from the show for us. There's a section in around a Russian boxer and a Welsh okay. boxer. Which <laughs> I, I thought you might give us because I just love I love the idea of these two different styles of opponent. Shall we put it yeah, that way? Yeah. So maybe you'd give us a setup as to what do we need to know was happening at this point in time. Yeah. Well, this this is just um it reflects being. Boxing for the Irish team, and you're always terrified of drawing somebody from like the Ru- Russia or the Ukraine or um, or Kazakhstan. One of these guys, you know, really fearsome kind of boxers. Mm. You meet the Russian and David fight, and you might try and be friendly, you know, stick your hand out for a handshake, and it's like, <laughs> just pull it away. I will not shake hands with you, Irish, for you are my enemy, and tonight I will break you in the head. Then the fight would start, because that's not exactly good radio, but the fight would start, and they'd have these lovely, languid kind of southpaw styles, fainting high with the right hand, fainting low, keeping it busy. Then, boom! <laughs> I make joke earlier today, Irish, I break body instead. And he punches you in the tummy. Punches you in the tummy, scary, scary. Compared to, say, if you box against somebody from Wales, it was often different, you know? They were much friendlier in the day of a fight. I bump into the Welshman before the fight, and it was very much a case of like, oh, hello! I believe we'll be sharing a ring together this evening. What a pleasure. My name is Ryan with four eyes and two eyes. See you later on. Don't hit me a low blow, you old devil. A lot friendlier. But I was boxing this Russian. Um, I was in my early 20s at this point and I was losing the fight on points. It was the last round and I was trying to make up the deficit, you know, kind of kamikaze style going at him. And he hit me with this left hook kind of on a downward motion. I came in outside my, my field of vision and rattled my brain around my skull. The bell rang and I lost the fight on points, but I didn't know where I was. I had a Russian concussion. And that's actually a term that boxers use, is it? Well, I think I invented it. Very proudly. <laughs> uh, that's Terry O'Neill with a little section from his show, Rope on a Dope. I love the idea of the Russian concussion. Am I right in thinking that, it was according to the script anyway, after that, people actually played around with the fact that you actually couldn't remember what had or hadn't happened. How many yeah, showers yeah. did you end up having? I think about seven, yeah. Basically, um, the lads, I, I was, the team manager came in and, and said to me, like, good man, Terry, you box well there. You have nothing to be ashamed of. Go in there and have a shower. So I got up, had a shower, came back down, groggily sat down on a bench. Then my dad came into the dressing room and says, well done, son, you did good. You have nothing to be ashamed of. You did yourself proud. Now get in there and have a shower. <laughs> so up I got again, back in the shower, sat back down the same bench. And by this time, the other lads in the boxing team realised I didn't really know what was going on around me. Decided to have some fun with me. I think about seven showers I got sent for before <laughs> yeah. I woke up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I suppose it brings up in some ways, Terry, you know, one of the serious sides of boxing, which is obviously the kind of head injuries that happen if if you're being hit on the head on a regular basis for a large portion of your adult life maybe what what's a, the average boxing career are we talking 10 15 years you know yeah. how many blows might you get in that period of time 
Well, it's um again. Sorry, I refer back to the script. I I I talk about uh, Tony Jeffries, who's like an Olympic medalist from Sunderland. Once did some maths. He said he had one hundred and eight fights. For each of those fights in preparation, he probably sparred on ten occasions, maybe roughly six rounds per session on average. Getting hit in the head maybe seven times per round. That makes it fifty-two thousand punches to the head he's taken. Mm. Incredible, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I mean, it's it's hardly surprising that, you know, you might have a few injuries after that. I was just it, surprised that somebody from Sunderland could do those kind of maths, frankly. But um, <laughs> no, <it's... laughs> but you do you do bring in the death of uh, Levander Johnson. You might you might remind people of that particular event. Yes, yeah. Levander Johnson was like, I, I'd only a very small part in this story, to be honest. I was over, I was 20 years of age. I was over training in Austin, Texas with Jesus Chavez. Mm. And he was preparing for a world title fight against uh, Levander Johnson in Las Vegas in a couple of weeks' time. And, like, I remember casually, like, just saying to him, you know, as flippantly as, oh, you're going to kill him. And, and, and he did. He, Levander Johnson that night was 35 years of age. He'd only just won the world title, was starting to make big money for the first time. And he lost his life after that fight. Uh, I think it was a 10th round stoppage. He took a long, slow beating with his own father in the corner. And... um. Yeah, there's a statue of him now in New Jersey, mm. but that's that's all that's left. I suppose there are there are glory tales in there as well, glory stories, the rumble in the jungle. Who are, who are the big heroes for you? Is Ali up there? Oh, of course, Ali. Oh, Ali's up there very much so. I think I I refer back often to Rocky Marciano in my brain because as a twelve or thirteen year old, when I really fell in love with boxing and really over romanticized everything, he was like the zenith. He was my mm. hero because I looked at him as somebody who had. All these physical disadvantages. He had a short reach, got cut as soon as he looked in the shaving mirrors, they say. Yeah, he, um, he had small, brittle hands, was always breaking his hands. He hadn't got too much skill. He had really bad back problems, but he, he never lost a fight. 49 fights, 49 wins, 43 knockouts. He always found a way to win. And I just thought that stubborn determination he had and the toughness, that he was, he was my, my favourite for a long, long time. Mm. And Jack Dempsey? Oh, Jack Dempsey's great, yeah. Yeah, great life story. It's, 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 the, it's the backstory here that's actually important, isn't it? Yeah, well, Jack Dempsey, um, I suppose he was a hobo. He was essentially homeless early on. And he used to bunk onto trains, obviously, with no money. So he'd hold on to the undercarriage for mile after mile, mm. hour after hour, go from local towns to challenge a local bully to a fight. That's how he learned how to fight. And Mike Tyson, it, equally, there's a strong backstory there, isn't there? Absolutely. Mike Tyson was, uh, I guess he was bullied so badly in Brownsville, Brooklyn. He used to break into abandoned buildings to hide away, to get away from the bullies. He ended up being arrested himself over like 30 times by the time he was 12. Or Sonny Liston was born around 1930. I say around 1930 because as a poor black kid in Arkansas, they didn't bother with birth certs in those days. Mm. He was the youngest of 23 children. One day when he was nine, the family mule died. And his father turned to Sonny, who was nine, and said, Well, boy, now you're the mule. Yeah, that'd, that'd toughen you up for, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, it's clear listening to you, Terry, the passion for boxing and certainly for boxing stories and telling boxing stories, that's all still there. I mean, people couldn't see the way you, you, you to my mind, I you know, wouldn't know yeah. one end of a boxing glove from another <laughs> probably. But, you know, you have you have the move, you still have the physique and the moves of a boxer. When I look at you, even just sitting in the chair there, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of jiggling around like a, like a boxer would. It all on. comes back, flashbacks, flashbacks, yeah. <laughs> What did then? What what sent you from there into the the other boxing ring that is the stage? Yeah, um, I guess I slowly. It was a slow process. It wasn't any big moment. I just kind of slowly. 
with, with boxing, I kind of became a little bit disillusioned. Not with boxing itself; it's always going to be a massive passion for me. Like mm. uh, it, it still occupies so much of my of my thoughts. Um, and I, I follow boxing. I get Boxing News magazine every single week since I'm 15 years of age or whatever. And um, I watch the big fight. I watch the fights every weekend and such. But in terms of actually competing, I kind of got a bit. I fell out of love with the tedious kind of nature of training every day. I seen some head injury kind of stuff happening. I seen people who, who I thought were at the top of the profession and weren't really yeah. that happy. And slowly, I kind of was. I was always interested in films, especially not so. I hadn't really seen a play until I was like twenty three, to be honest. But in terms of films, film and TV, I was always really a real movie buff. So I kind of. I always wanted, it was an itch, I, an itch I always wanted to scratch. So I kind of gradually start progressing from act, from boxing into acting and getting more and more involved. And you're up on stage now and you're performing the show on a daily basis. It's just you. So who's your opponent when you're up there by yourself? Who am I versus? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, God, it's, um, I guess your opponent, I, if you, I guess kind of philosophically you could say it's yourself. It's always yeah. yourself in the yeah. mirror, isn't it? Probably is in boxing as well. Yeah, I mean, that's the only one you can control when you think about it. Like, you can't control your opponent. You can only control... I heard John Kavanagh talk about something similar to this, McGregor's coach, saying that, like, you can't control your opposition. You can only control your opponent. So if you can master your technique, master your fear, your emotions, then maybe you can, you can do all right. So it's a bit of a head game then, a bit Absolutely. like bit like acting in that respect. Yes, Terry, great to speak to you. Thanks for thanks for coming into us this evening. Thanks That's so much, Terry O'Neill, and Terry's one man show, Rope It Up, written and performed by himself, directed by Michael James Ford. In this iteration, is on at Beauty's Cafe Theatre until the end of this week, and you can find out full information on beautyscafetheatre.com. Jabberwock is the second novel from Derek Havana, the pen name of writer, academic translator and poet David Butler, native of Dublin. The author spent more than a decade working in Africa, Australia and Latin America before returning to settle in Ireland. Jabberwock, as you might gather from the title's nod to Lewis Carroll, is a surrealistic orgy of linguistic tricksiness, wordplay, punning and in-jokery that owes much more than a little to the school of Irish genius messers such as Flann O'Brien, James Joyce and Lawrence Stern. Set in the 1930s, featuring a formidable cast of characters, Jabberwock tells of a down-at-heel journalist named Hackett who is dispatched to the UK to investigate a plot by disgruntled Republicans to bring down the British Empire by spreading a counterfeit language. And uh, Dara Kavanagh, <laughs> a.k.a. David Butler, is with me in studio this <laughs> evening. Um, I'm just saying, as I was looking at the book um, through, through the day today, David, this is a huge amount of fun. I don't know how <laughs> yeah. important the plot is to it. Are you having just playing around with language? Is that really what you're at with this piece? It's where it came from. I mean, it goes all the way back to when I was about nine or ten and I came across Jabberwock in Through the Looking Glass mm. and I was bowled over and I remember I ran down to my dad and said, look, and he went, yeah, he wasn't too impressed. <laughs> but like this idea that you could just have fun and play with words and you got images in your head of twas brillig and the slithy toes did gyre and gimble in their way but I knew what he was talking about and then um, in secondary school we did um, 1984 it was still before 1984 so it was still Topical yes, yeah, Wilderness yeah, yeah. Album, like you know and I thought okay this idea that the thought police 
can control how you think by banning words and removing words and impoverishing language. It means you can't have political opponents. It was a brilliant idea. Yeah, the the, the idea of newspeak that all yeah, brings speak, in. Exactly, a, a yeah, newspeak, exactly. Newspeak and it also is news is in there as well. Yeah, you know? but it, contro- it controls how you speak. And then the third book was um, when I read Clockwork Orange. And again, there's all this made up slang. Well, it's actually Russian, but I didn't know that mm. at the time. But as you read it, you pick it up. And um, so, yeah, I mean, the impulse to write this was fun with language, just playing with language and all that. But I began to write this now in about 2020, sorry, uh, 2000, I should say. Mm. So 20 years ago. So a long time in gestation here. Yeah, but the world has changed so much. And I began to look at how political groups are going down rabbit holes on the Internet and there's conspiracy theories and all this. And I thought, you know, I can have a lot of fun and yet have a bit of you know, a political message going on here, how language works, how thought works, how it can be controlled, how it can be divided, you know. So that that's at the background of this as well. Yeah, and and it's but what another interesting aspect of that is that you chose to set this in and around the 1930s, just as the Second World War is breaking out. Now, your previous uh, novel, Prague, 1938, is set in Prague (laughs) in 1938. Yeah. Is, Is there something about I think it was a kind of a more serious affair, I think, possibly than this. But is there something about this, that era that really attracts you? What is it? Yeah, 100 percent. I think it's that it became so polarised over the course of 10 years. Uh, You really couldn't not take a side, I suppose, in the 1930s, rightly or wrongly. I mean, you had people like Shaw or Yates picking wrong, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. wrong people to support for a while. But there was that. But there was also for specifically for Jabberwock, I wanted the technology to be nothing to do with where the parallel is nowadays with social media or whatever. So you go back then, it's pre-television. You had the radio, but print really mattered. Newsprint really mattered, you know. Um, So I, I wanted that to be in it. But also, I mean... Obviously, I think, if you know, anyone who reads this will know there's a lot of Flann O'Brien in it. Mm. You know, there's a lot of, a um, bit of James Joyce or whatever, but it's that kind of era of wordplay and language and Dublin being a town and, you know, all that is there as well. Yeah, so the Palace Bar is a big part of the, the Palace Bar, part of absolutely. The story. And, and of course, R.M. Smiley was the, you know, he was the actual editor of the Times. And, you know, I mean, I, about half the people in this are real and half of them aren't. And about half the facts in Verticamas are real. So, for instance, when I was growing up in Dublin, we had the swastika laundry and they were driving around in electric vans and they had a big swastika as their badge. And this is in the 1970s. Yeah. I think, how could this be? So it's in the book and people think I made it up, but half the things are actually true. So I'm playing that game, which I think is very pertinent when you go onto the Internet now of you don't know what's real and what's not real. And if you start um, eroding language the way these um, conspirators are doing, you have no basis of checking anything. If you can contaminate language, can you contaminate dictionaries? Can you contam- you know? So where is the basis by which you can, cha- you can check facts? 
And then, of course, when Goebbels hears this, he's thinking of having alternative fact and alternative yes. facts and all these sort of Which things. Which we, um, we were thinking that, you know, alternative facts is a, a contemporary, oh, a modern yeah. invention. Oh, no, yeah, it's been yeah, there, yeah. been there for a long time. Absolutely. But you have great fun with some of the names that you give us here. <laughs> I mean, Hackett, Ignatius, yeah. just, just explain who Hackett is to, to give us yeah, a little okay. bit of a grounding in terms of the world that we're in and what Ignatius Hackett is involved in. Yeah, I, I mean, even the very opening line was um, Hackett may not have been Hackett, he may have been Rooney, but that's another story. <laughs> and then we go off following this guy, Hackett. Um, I, I, I went back to his father, Walter Hackett, as kind of a Walter Shandy figure, you know, and, and this is his son. And he's this journalist that... Um, there's a real danger in the world of Jabberwock that if you're too close to words, you can suddenly suffer from all these things like aphasia and anacultan and all these and their actual disease and you can be left speechless or whatever. And, and he suffers from that. But just going to his name, like his father is this um, self-taught kind of um, innocent and he's trying to help his son get born and he pulls him wrong and he yanks his leg and he fancies himself as a polyglot so he figures that the name Ignacio is Ignacio. He was born badly. And that's what he calls, you know. And then that's where Hackett's love of languages comes from. I mean, I've got, I've got a love of languages myself, like, you know. I mean, the, the mechanics of languages fascinate me. Um, Robert Frost once said that poetry is the quality of a language you lose when you translate. So you can't translate poetry. But then it hit me like, you know, I mean, if you look at, say, Irish or French or Russian or whatever, like Irish is, I, I think it's unique in that we start with the verb. We have no idea who's going to do this. Huig mm. or beg or conic, you know, verb. And then you get the person. The Germans tend to hold up the verb till the very end. What does that say about national character? Not a lot, except in the word of Jabberwock, it does. It says know. everything. So you can yeah. start playing with this an awful lot. Yeah, because in fact, the, the whole idea here is that partly... Uh, Igna uh, Ignatius Hackett is involved in in this whole investigation into whether, in fact, the Republican movement is using a counterfeit, a, a false language to f to bring down the British That's Empire. That's right. Yeah, they're actually spreading this these false words that are going into um, into the public domain, and then they find out that there are two different um, types of counterfeit languages: counterbuck and their scas. So the people on one side of a line will speak slightly different dialect than the other side, mm. and then they won't be able to get on with each other. Uh, it's kind of a divide and conquer thing. And I and guess you could you could argue that many would say the way we speak English, despite the fact that our closest neighbours speak English, we, we speak the language totally differently, and maybe that says something about the relationship between absolutely. the two places. And again, we have fun with that. Like I mean, all these footnotes and all of them are spurious. But I'm talking about, for example, um, the book is littered with footnotes. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you really can't trust most. Well, of is them. that your academic background seeping in? Uh, Possibly. It's also people like uh, Borges. I, I, I studied a few Latin American authors and he, Borges would write essays and have footnotes and you had no idea whether he's true or not. Like, you know, where he sent you. But I'd wonder, like, um, I remember uh, my wife Tanya was having a book uh, published by HarperCollins in England and they couldn't understand how somebody was saying, y you know yourself. But what does that mean? <laughs> you know yourself. Ah, you know yourself. They just don't have that. <laughs> you so don't have it, that expression. So yeah. then in this footnote, it becomes, this is a thing that the Irish used to spread among the secret societies to oust the British spies. And their favourite one was, um, I will, yeah. 
Yeah. Which means I won't. Of course but they didn't know that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, we have Inspector Quibble, who's the chief inspector of the semantics yeah. branch of the CID. <laughs> That's right, yeah. You know, yeah. And nobody's going to have any problem with you having a go at a professor <laughs> or an inspector of semantics. But Hack Et, of course, is a journalist. Sure, with yeah, Hack at yeah, the beginning. Yeah. And one that struck me in terms of your... Um, in terms of your academic background, because you you're an academic background, sure. you also translate. Profe- uh, this is Seymour Doolittle. Yeah. Now, if you say that as Seymour and Doolittle, he's a professor of applied linguistics. Yeah. How do your colleagues in the linguistics area <laughs> of studies, how do you think they'll feel about that dismissal? Well, funny enough, in my head, it was say more, do little. Ah, uh, say more, no, right, OK. There's more said than done kind of thing. Yes, like yeah, say more, it, do little kind it, of thing. It's, it's similar, similar dismissal, mind you, isn't it? Sure. Um, and yet he's um, like he's a professor emeritus at this stage. He does have sensible things to say, I suppose. Like, you know, he's mm. one of the more um, like an awful lot of this is based on the way I describe it is through the looking glass. If it was written by Flann O'Brien. So he's a bit like the white knight in in through the looking glass. He's, he's one of these mm. sort of clumsy figures, but he's coming out with the, with, with the right ideas, you know. You were telling me as as you were coming in, um, is it tomorrow night the launches? That's or, great, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That this is a very nervous period oh, for, for you as a novelist. <laughs> Absolutely. You have, you have these visions of like tumbleweed blown across and like, you know, you're the only one there with possibly, you know, your brother. Or Owen Smith is launching his novel along with me. He's also with Daedalus. Uh, Daedalus Ireland. This is not to be confused with Daedalus, the, the poetry publishers. This is yeah, a different it, thing it, altogether. The whole thing gets confusing in that... It's Daedal- of Jabberwock. Daedalus book, yeah. Daedalus Books, the UK um, publisher, is around for 40 years. It's their 40th anniversary. And they've always had a very European perspective. And between myself and Owen Smith, they're now launching an Irish label as part of that. And then Daedalus here is, I think, the Daedalus Press. Yes. Which is poetry. And again, you know, I've been published with them as well. The same, the same, you know, Stephen Daedalus really is behind them both. This yeah. European multilingual. Well, Irish it says a lot like, that, you know. that we have that that aspect to it, both sure. Irish and European. Thanks so much for coming into us this evening, David. And that's uh, Jabberwock uh, by David, by Dara, uh, by Dara Kavanagh or David Butler, who's sitting in front of me, Dara Kavanagh being the uh, pseudonym, published by Daedalus Ireland. And it will be launched in Hodges Figgis this Thursday, October the 5th. Underdogs, rivalry and triumph over adversary are all themes explored in countless sports films. If you think of Chariots of Fire, if you think of Rush, Irish films also have explored deep issues through the medium of sport. Uh, Gay Love and Handsome Devil and the, the Northern Irish Troubles in the Boxer. A new film set in the breathtaking coastal landscape of Corcoghivna in the Dingle Peninsula explores themes of loss and belonging in the story of an all-female Navog rowing th- uh, team. It stars Kelly Goff as Eva, Eva Lurkin Cranich as her father Bear, both struggling to deal with the loss of Eva's mother and Bear's wife Myra. The film is directed by Declan Rex and written by writer Eugene O'Brien, who joins me now on the line. Where did the whole idea for for this Irish language film, as it is, uh, Eugene Tarek? Where did it start? Um, how are you? Uh, well, it started um, Tarek. It means pull in English. Uh, and we kind of came up with the idea about three or four years ago when the Cine Cahar uh, scheme was first launched. And Akleen uh, Navukala, who was a, a producer who we had kind of been knocking around a few ideas with, 
and, she, and we decided we wanted to get a, 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 a film proposal into this scheme. And she uh, had the world of the Navog. She spends a lot of time down in Dingle and around that area and thought that the, na- the world of the Navog racing uh, would be a really interesting subject. And I had a character called the Bear, who was an unreconstructed kind of old school um, champion of the, of the Navogs who um, was now in, 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 in leaner times. So between us, we, we kind of started writing this up and then we start to think about Bear's behaviour in the past and how difficult it would have been to be uh, someone belonging to him. And then we kind of thought about a daughter character and then she became kind of the focus of the film, Mm -hmm. the main protagonist of the film, uh, as she has to return home because he's had a kind of minor heart attack and he needs looking after. Yeah, as Liam Heffernan, who who plays the 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 um the, the the landlord in the local pub, says to, says to uh, says to Lorcan Cranage, "Welcome to the Stents Club." Uh, after he after he's yes, had after yes, he's indeed. had his operation to deal with the the heart issue, um, but that that story of the daughter coming back from the big city, highly successful we think and believe in the big city, working every hour that God sends her, coming back to the to the local area where some of her friends have stayed that's a very that's a very potent field and one that I think ground that you have trodden quite well I mean particularly when I think of something like Pure Mule and Eden you, you know your, your your plays and your, the TV series that idea of the outsider coming back in to disrupt the local community it, it's, it is fertile ground isn't it? Absolutely and I think it's something that you know, any of us who grew up in the country, uh, you know, it, it was that thing, that pilgrimage home, the, you know, the bus home and how you changed, you know, and then you have to come back to somewhere that maybe hasn't changed and all that kind of stuff. And Aoife certainly has changed. She's become a real strive driver kind of successful person. Um, and But she's kind of cut herself off from... Um, her roots really are the sea and nature and all, all that kind of stuff that she used to embrace as a teenager and she's kind of carrying a deep kind of uh, loss in her that she hasn't been able mm. to express and she's kind of it's almost like she's cut off from the head up it's it's, it's her head is ruling her and she needs to kind of as she gradually uh, befriends uh, back with the local women she gets into the sea with them and she kind of starts finding her body again and she gets back into yeah. the boat she's kind of cajoled back into the boat yeah, and right. um, and then she has a chance yeah I think Colleen Cockrock it might even be um, the, the Lorcan Cranish car- character the father character Bear who refers to her as the Colleen Cockrock you know the city girl coming back in kind of thinking she can yes. she can uh, uh, whatever shake things up but uh, they do refer to her as the Colin Carter because the Scanon is Osgoelaga it is uh, uh, through the medium of Irish apart from the Cine Cahar uh, project which obviously has been hugely successful I mean on Colleen Kuhn uh, Arox being just two of the, mm. the great films that have come out of that particular uh, project and, and system what was the attraction for you to, to have this film you, were, you wrote it in English but to have it then performed and you and spoken through Irish what was the attraction for you Eugene well I think it just the absolute authenticity of that particular area um something that's just unique to us and kind of I kind of feel that 
the TGCAR scheme has been so successful in kind of showing us that making really powerful stories about very particular and specific and authentic areas is the way to go rather than trying to do genre films or that kind of thing you know what I mean that we have such extraordinary landscape here and such great sense of place and mm. such extraordinary stories that so I think that was it really and and uh, I mean I don't speak Irish so it wasn't absolutely ideal but what was ideal was that my producer Kleena is a, is a is a native speaker and she she kind of worked on the story with me so we spent hours in rooms knocking around the story uh, so she knew the characters very well and I would go away and write endless treatments and then come back and then I'd do endless scripts and mm. she'd re- we'd rewrite and then when we were kind of happy with something she would translate it then into Irish. Uh, I know film writing really is all about structure in many ways. So dialogue is kind of the icing on the cake, to be honest. You know, the main work in film writing is not like about about how it's translating. It's mm. about how the sequences are going together and and on and, and the plot and all that kind of stuff that that goes into the craft of, of trying to write a film. But, but so writing it, we um, did that when you, when you saw it translated then and when you heard it being rehearsed and then being shot and, and see it on the screen finally in Irish. What did it add to the film that perhaps you were surprised, you know, would not have been there if it were, if this was spoken in English? It just there was a kind of I suppose it's 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 the way Irish can express something that English can because I mean Kleena would often say, "Oh, I, it's very hard to translate this because English is such a it's it's such a limited language." <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, that that Irish, uh, she was kind of you know frustrated, like, uh, and uh, yeah, it's just it just it just gives the film a real stamp of uh, authenticity and of of place. And I mean, the English subtitles that we that you will see for the people who who, who like me, unfortunately, can't speak the language. That kind of is mo- there's all my dialogue more or less, you yes. know. And then and then what they're speaking is 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 kind of is is that. But then Irish speakers, I think, will have a great treat uh, listening to us. Yeah, know? well, let's let's listen to a clip actually that gives us a sense of one of the great things that would would have been very difficult to translate. <laughs> it's hard, difficult to translate back. This <laughs> is the four girls that are there are four women. Who who team up as this crew for the uh, to, to row on the Nave Og, and they've been out doing a, a, a very physical and difficult training uh, session, and then they, they 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 come back they come back together to have a chat then about you know how that went and what they should do next. So let's have a listen to all four of them on the boat post training session. Shalinda Mano. Mano no ma! Hakama Su. Mano Namara. Lakila Dokila. 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 
Le Chiele Do Chiele, the ending of that clip there, featuring Kelly Goff as Aoife, Kate Nicolini as Jude, Kate Finnegan playing the character of Ashleen and Rachel Feeney playing the character of Naomi, the four women who make up the, the Nave Og crew. And I just love that phrase, Le Chiele Do Chiele, because it crudely translates as together and for each other. But Le Chiele Do Chiele is much more poetic in that respect. Yes. Manon Amara, similarly, you know, Sisters of the Sea. Manon Amara, I think, is a wonderful phrase. But I wonder. There's so much. I mean, the coastline looks amazing, and um, the, the landscape looks incredible here. But the four uh, actors involved there Kelly Goff, Kate Nicolini, Kate Finnegan, and Rachel Feeney they're actually rowing. Absolutely. They, they, they um, put incredible commitment uh, and their bodies on the line to get in the boat and train in very, very short space of time. We had two uh, brilliant rowers down in, 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 in the area, uh, Monza and Karen, and they put them to their paces. And by the end, they were like, you know, they could have mm. competed in any of the races. So we only use doubles for very few of the scenes. It's mostly yeah. always the actors doing it. And they were incredible. And they, they kind of got yeah. a, a spirit together that mirrors what the, what the team has to do in the, in the film, you know, because it's, it's, it's kind of Kelly's character doesn't trust people very easily. So she has to learn yeah, to shape this yeah. team and to get them all together. And then... I suppose the, the challenge of the film was to, it's, it's a sports drama, but it's also a very kind of emotional drama about Get a father and a daughter. The two things, yeah. And this, and balance the two things in and get them kind of we woven in and I think we got there in the end yeah. I think well, it, as, it, as, it, as I, it, I think it, it's um, something I'm very proud of like I think what, what was good was that COVID happened we couldn't shoot for about a year and a half and we actually kept knocking away at the script so and that, pairing that, it back that, and pairing yeah, that, it back and I well, think it really well, as, yeah. as, as that phrase says, Lechela Dochela is exactly what happened in, in that process. Eugene, thanks for being with us this evening. That's Eugene O'Brien there speaking about his film Tarak, which is in cinemas from October the 6th. And we will be reviewing it on tomorrow night's programme. It's almost 30 years since Neil Jordan directed the movie Inter- Interview with the Vampire, which is based on Anne Rice's best-selling novel. Now it returns to our screens, but this time as a seven-part TV series that will begin on BBC Two on Thursday, October the 12th, starring Sam Reid as Le Stade de Lyoncourt and Jacob Anderson as Louis de Pont-du-Lac. This imaginative update applies several new twists to the acclaimed gothic horror. The series was a hit with American audiences last year and there's a second season already in production. Chris Wasser joins me in studio now to to tell us more about it. I think one of the things that we often forget about this one, I mean, when I think of the film, first of all, I think Tom Cruise, I think Brad Pitt, I think Kirsten Dunst. Those are Mm. the three people that come immediately to mind. But of course, this is Interview with the Vampire. And it's an interview by a journalist, Christian Slater, in the film. How does that feed into what's happening in this BBC series? That's, that's interesting that you say that, because whenever I think of the Neil Jordan film, I think of Christian Slater. I think of, you know, Daniel Malloy sitting there in San Francisco interviewing this vampire. I always love that part of it. Uh, in this update, we have 
this idea where an interview has already happened in the 1970s between Daniel Malloy, who's played by Eric Bogusian. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Mm. Um, uh, he interviewed this uh, this Louis character back in the 1970s, but he didn't really buy into the stories that he was being told. In other words, he didn't believe that he was speaking to a vampire. So we're led to believe here that 50 years have passed and uh, this journalist, Daniel Malloy, he's had a successful career. He's a hardened cynic. You know, he's done everything. He's been fired from several newspapers and hired back and sold millions of books. But he is at a low point in his life where he's living alone. He's recently been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and he's feeling sorry for himself and almost by chance he receives another call from Louis out of the blue who also posts some back his old interview mm. tapes from the 70s and he phones him up to say I want you to interview me again I feel as though you're ready this time to interview me so he travels all the way to Dubai where Louis is hiding out in this darkened penthouse for obvious reasons and he sits down to tell this you know cynical journalist once again that I'm a vampire and I'm ready to tell my story and I also think you're ready to help me tell it and what is the nature of that story uh, you know I suppose famously vampire stories are kind of problematic when you have a white man just talking about oh how tough life is being a, a vampire. Yes. That's generally what we get. Well we're getting a little bit of a reinvention with this one because for the first time uh, Louis uh, played by Jacob Anderson is a black man and in the original novel uh, the original Louis in the in the Anne Rice novel I should say uh, he was a white man who owned a plantation and in the film he was also a white man who owned a plantation in 18th century Louisiana. Uh, the guy who adapted this a political surprise uh, finalist and also uh, a screenwriter from Perry Mason and Boardwalk Empire Roland Jones is his name he decided along with Anne Rice and also working in, in uh, collaboration with her son author Christopher Rice that nobody really wants to hear that story anymore mm. the idea of l- l- watching again another problematic white man in the 18th century becoming you know or being cursed or blessed whatever way you look at it with immortality we're not really interested in that what if the character was black what if we bring the story into the early 20th century into the heart of New Orleans where Anne Rice was from uh, that would work an awful lot that would work a lot better Mm. and it does so this Louis uh, was uh, made a vampire in 1910 in New Orleans Uh, when we meet him he's still a man of course and he's still um, he's actually providing for his family who are quite respectable and quite well off by running uh, sporting houses in other words running uh, brothels which is what they were called in Storyville at the time Um, and although he's a success he'll never be as as successful as the white men around him and this frustrates him and the only man that can see that this frustrates him isn't actually a man but a vampire Lestat is his name he's played by uh, Sam Reed this time around and he can see uh, Louis like no one else can and also he's in love with them and this is another aspect of the tale that we haven't seen on screen before whereas the Anne Rice novel did kind of deal with the idea that you know they they were they were more than mm. friends they were more than companions this is Louis and Lestat we didn't actually see that in the Neil Jordan film it was more suggested it was more of a subtext this time Roland Jones and Alan Taylor the director they lean, lean into that they embrace it there's a proper queer love story here Alright well let's listen to a clip that gives us I think a sense of that dynamic between them Sam Reed as Lestat as you say and Jacob Anderson as Louis um, and Lestat is talking about his greatest fear. There's one thing about being a vampire that I must fear above all else. And that is loneliness. You can't imagine the emptiness. Void. Stretching out for decades at a time. You take this feeling away from me, Louis. We must stay together and take precaution and never part. How many of us are out there? We can't be the only ones. How many vampires? 
Not many, I'm afraid. Maybe a hundred. A hundred and one. And there you have uh, Jacob Anderson as Louis and Sam Reed as Lestat in a, in a scene from the ad- television adaptation of Interview with the Vampire. Chris Wasser has been watching the series for us. No doubting that the, the homoerotic element no. of the tale is very much to the fore there. Even the very romantic music underneath, it kind of spells it out for us, Chris. Yeah, they very much embrace it, Roland Jones, the showrunner that is. And I think it's a better show for it because we're telling a proper love story. But also mm-hmm. it introduces uh, this idea that Lestat and uh, Louis in, you know, in the novel. Well, also Anne Rice did embrace it in the novel. But in the film, you know, there was it was everything was just suggested and they had a problematic friendship here. It's a toxic romance. And that actually, you know, you can do you can work with yeah. that an awful lot more. Later on in the series, we'll be introduced to to uh, Claudia because at one point you know they do essentially adopt this vampire child uh, and that you know completely that changes the dynamic between the two of them but for the first few episodes we're looking at how Louis you know telling his story to the journalist in the present how he dealt in the past with trying to after he became a vampire he still tries to be with his family but that's not so simple yeah I mean it it is the problematic element of it we have to sympathise and empathise with these guys who are going around killing people because that's what they have to do to survive but that he actually has a problem with that and that's um, that for me has always been a little bit, you know, it's 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 almost like a, it opens up to one too many plot holes that you know Louis knew that he was going to be a vampire. How did he think that he, you know, how did he think mm. he was going to survive? But it is quite interesting because he becomes a vampire, but he still hates the fact that Lestat is so cruel to the people that he kills. You know, Louis, let's just say Louis doesn't like to play with his food, and he feels bad, <laughs> so bad afterwards for killing people. Um, so that if impacts their impacts their relationship too. I should add one of the things I love about this, and we mentioned that the top was it's very good at the interview part. Uh, the actors involved and the setting that we're in, we're in this COVID setting where, you know, everybody's, it's still in, at the height of the pandemic. Yeah, so Louis, everybody's, it has to be distance. Problem for a vampire, that yes, one. Actually, I thought it was quite strange that uh, uh, Louis' staff, they come out and serve him his meals and they're wearing masks. And then while I was watching, I was thinking, if you have a vampire overlord, the least of your worries is COVID, you know, I thought that was quite interesting. But the interview and the interplay between mm. the journalist and, and, and his subject, that's brilliant. It's quite playful. Uh, the the dialogue is fantastic. It also embraces a, a, a really dark sense of humor where every now and then, for instance, Louis is talking about the first time that he held his newborn uh, nephew and, you know, a vampire holding a newborn baby. That's probably not going to end well. Uh, the journalist just cuts straight through and says, all I want to know is, did you eat the baby? And you just do not expect <laughs> lines like that, but they're very well delivered. And I was thinking to myself, if the whole show was just the interview, I'd watch that. But it's not. And the flashbacks are very well done, too. And so we were into, I think it's a seven part series. Seven part, yes. Yeah. Uh, have you, how much of it have you seen and how well does it develop? Does it hold for that? Seven yes, it does episodes, actually. Yeah. Seven episodes. For once, I thought actually, I've never been all that, I've never been a huge fan of the Neil Jordan film. I felt as though it rushed over certain aspects of it. This one certainly takes its time and it's looking at a wider, dare I say it, universe. It's going to tell mm-hmm. other stories in the Vampire Chronicles. Which is why there's already a second season yes. on the way. Yeah. So it's certainly not rushing the story. As I said, we still have to get to Claudia. I'm only, I'm only on episode three now and I know that Claudia is going to be introduced at the end of that and I think because it's taking its time and I think because it's exploring the background of the characters a little bit more it's actually a better show for it because vampire tales they're all the same at the end of the day you have to change the setting you have to give us a bit more background because we all know you know we all know the blood and gore is coming show us the the human side of things and it's it's actually very good at doing that performances who stands out for you I mean again I still think of Tom Cruise Brad Pitt and Kirsten Dunst and Christian Slater these guys are better uh, Jacob Anderson is very good as Louis but I should say Sam Reed he needs to be seductive of suave and sophisticated in order to draw 
draw his victims in or in order to draw Louis in. But then he also needs to be aggressive and terrifying. And he's able to do that very well. A lot better, I think, than Tom Cruise was. Even though Tom Cruise was good in the Neil Jordan film, they were all good in the Neil Jordan film. This one knows what it's doing. It's more capable. It's confident. Uh, it's it's just, it's a very entertaining yeah. gothic soap opera, basically. So you're going to stick with it? I will, yes. The seven, yeah. seven episodes that we will get to see on BBC in the coming days. Thanks for coming into us this evening, Chris. That's Chris Wasser and Interview with the Vampire premieres on BBC Two Television on Thursday, October the 12th. First episode will be at 9pm and that is our lot for this Wednesday evening here on Arena. Research this evening was by Paula Shields. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Gar Duffy was on sound and tonight's programme was produced by Kay Sheehy. Talk to you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1 and John Creedon will be with you right after the news.